Hi Triber, we're back for the next season. Smart Girl Tribe has grown to become the UK's number one female empowerment organisation. We have an event series, a digital magazine, a membership platform and this podcast. What can you expect from us? Interviews from women all over the world who are driving change and pushing the needle forward. From actors to activists, to CEOs and conflict photographers, to the brains behind some of the world's largest corporations. When you're not tuned in every Wednesday at 6pm, then make sure you're chatting to fellow unapologetically ambitious women in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or sharing our ever so inspirational content on Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe. Hello Tribers, happy Wednesday. I'm really looking forward to you all listening to today's episode with Alison Baskerville. Alison is a conflict photographer, a former soldier and artist. I first came across her work through an article she had written. We are now in 2020. Influencers are on the rise, Celebrity X Factor exists and it seems that everybody knows who the Kardashians are, which is why it was so refreshing to talk with Alison, not only about her work, but life as a female soldier, what it was like being told that that wasn't a career choice for women, going back to these war zones to photograph what was happening around her, what feminism means, life after her exhibition went viral, what that looked like when her world was turned upside down, the relationship between social media and photography, and of course, the role war plays in society. This is such a hard-hitting, provocative episode, and we have never released anything like this, which is why I'm so thrilled to do so today. Firstly, I just want to say a sincere thank you so, so much for agreeing to be interviewed on the podcast. It really means everything, and I do sincerely mean that. I grew up in Italy, and I was very, very fortunate. I went to a private language school, and I can honestly say just hearing from you and doing all of the research and finding out about your life so far I genuinely feel so privileged to have a conversation with you today and talk about your journey so just a sincere thank you no no problem and it's nice to um I'm always measured about how much I accept to talk about because I still find it uncomfortable to talk about stuff and writing that article was was a way for me to um explore that a bit because um i also understand that the way that we learn as people is through other people's experiences and i think now especially being a woman in the world um we're all we're all looking now for more versions of ourselves and different versions of ourselves to kind of keep growing so i'm 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 sort of accepting more interviews so it's really interesting because it's like getting through that feeling uncomfortable um, mm-hmm. about sharing a personal story but also owning it as well and hoping that it sort of benefits other people as well. First of all, diving in, can you please just give our listeners a brief overview of your career? You really have carried out some phenomenal work and as I've said, I sincerely feel very privileged considering my upbringing and then talking to you and having a conversation with you. So can you just open up about maybe the phenomenal work that you have been carrying out for so long? Um, sure. So um, I grew up in a, a small little town um, near a place called Cannock Chase in Staffordshire. Um, I was uh, always a, quite a curious kid. I liked um, exploring and making my own little adventures. Um, and I, I think when I, was, when I was small, I had no sense of being a girl or being female or... And, and I really, I really enjoyed that freedom of childhood where you didn't have to think so much 
about your gender per se and I was really lucky that I didn't have um, parents who kind of enforced that on me either uh, I'd say my mum was like the old sort of what the old fashion word of tomboy I think mm-hmm. my mum very much gave me an example of being a woman in the world without um, having to conform to modern beauty standards or to dress in a certain way and I didn't realise how important that would be in my life until I got a little bit older and I understood a little bit more about the pressures of being a woman um, as I grew up but um, it was not the easiest childhood there wasn't it wasn't smooth sailing there were lots of different challenges that I faced and I had a, a rather difficult uh, father as I was growing up and um, so the, the sort of trajectory into the military um, is one that probably gets talked about a lot and that was come was sort of escaping a, a broken home really um, and not really feeling like I particularly belonged where I did and whilst I had really interesting parents in the sense that they were very much nature lovers and wanted to have an alternative lifestyle we still lived in in largely a housing estate so we were seen as being very different too um so I found sort of early childhood a little bit of a challenge um but it also made me quite used to being um able to embrace difference and to be comfortable in my own skin and to not conform to what other people expected from me. And I think that set me up to go into the military better than I perhaps thought. But the point of joining the, the military was not based on some kind of patriotic duty or nationalistic pride. It had nothing to do with that. It was really about escaping um, and going on a sort of adventures, naive as I was when I was 21. And um, those very early days were interesting, actually, because I know that if I'd had a different guiding hand or perhaps had been more aware of how um, how the military is and the effects it has had on different people and um, certainly, like, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I always ask myself, would I have still gone in the military? And the answer is probably no. I probably would have got more into activism. Okay. Um, but it, it's interesting, I think. And the reason I'm saying that is that we almost, I almost think people want us to simplify our story to make it more digestible to people, but that's denying the fact that we are complicated. Everybody's got a complex story and it isn't just, it isn't just one way or the other. Um, and, you know, we, we can change and evolve as we get older and we learn things. And I think that early idea of activism and also being an artist because I did art for a year before I joined the military they were still sort of inside me but they hadn't been given any space to nurture Mm -hmm. it was just something that that rebelliousness and that sense of uh, commitment and loyalty and and kind of working for something was kind of used up in the military um, in one sense but it was still there waiting to kind of manifest into what I would say is the work that I do now which is certainly more based on um, how we deal with the way the patriarchy has dominated the systems that we live in and also as a feminist. Mm-hmm. So they're all, they're all connected really and a career is an interesting way to, to sort of talk about your life um, because it doesn't really feel like a career, it, it feels like a way of living and um, that strong sense of purpose has been something that I've carried through from 
the military in one context to now uh, in my work as an artist and a photographer and also in the safety training. So um, I would say in the, in the military up until the age of kind of, in, in sort of like 26, 27, I really thrived in that environment. I enjoyed being part of a team. I enjoyed pushing myself. I was trying to prove a point that I could be as good as the men, if not better. Mm-hmm. But I will say that can be damaging to um, and that actually we need to create spaces where we're not having to be better than all the time to just be accepted as normal. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I was doing in the military at that point um, and pushing myself extremely hard. Now, um, the real sort of catalyst for me changing the direction I was going in from kind of from soldier to artist was um, whilst I was in Iraq in 2005 um, as a soldier, and we um, experienced a lot of loss. Um, a few of my colleagues were killed in IEDs. And I wanted to find a language to use to talk about some of the pain mm-hmm. and also some of the changes that I've brought to us as people. And I wasn't particularly a good writer. I hadn't developed any kind of writing skills at that point. Um, but I could do it with a camera. And we had a camera in our unit, and I used to borrow it and take photographs of everything that was going on around me, whether it was uh, the soldiers that I was with, whether it was people I met in Iraq. And I realised that the camera was a way of me journaling um, feelings, but also journaling changes and capturing moments that um, helped to tell the story about what we were doing there. Um, But also... It got me curious then about documentary photography. It got me curious about photography as a, as a subject. Mm-hmm. And I ordered my first camera from eBay um, while mm-hmm. I was in Iraq. It got sent through the post, through the BFPO system, which is the British Forces Post Office. So, you know, you can imagine lots of like young squaddies were ordering stuff off eBay and having it sent to Iraq, which is kind of bizarre. Wow. Um, so I got this camera arrived and... It was an old film camera and I started shooting rolls and rolls of film on that. And I never became a photographer because I like cameras. I really actually don't care about cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just well, really what I'm interested in is that it's the image, it's the story. And uh, very early on in my life, that that's always been something that I've been interested in. Um, and well, I, it was all a bit... Um, chaotic because I wasn't really sure how to tell these stories. I just was shooting loads and loads of pictures and trying to make sense out of what what I was doing. But a lot of them were were photographed from my gut. They weren't sort of uh, a critical approach to the world. It was a very um, instinctive. Okay. Uh, So I always find it an interesting thing when people ask me about being an amateur or professional photographer. It's such an interesting phrase because... I, I don't know. At that point, I must have been an amateur photographer, but at the same part time I was a soldier. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this, this separation between amateur and professional really is more about if you make an income from it, but I don't think that delineates your skill or the story that you can tell or the, you know, the, the, the perhaps privilege you might hold. I know some very wealthy amateur photographers because they have another income from another job. So... It's, it's an interesting phrase, really, but I, I knew that when I got back from Iraq, 
that things would be different. And I knew that I wanted to pursue more in photography and I stayed taking pictures for four years after that. Um, and I knew that something had changed in me and I knew that I, I'd started to question the morals of what we are doing. I definitely questioned the reasons why we went to Iraq. Um, and it's interesting, like in 2019, we can access every single bit of social media at our fingertips. In 2005, I didn't feel like I had access to much uh, social media, really. I think I had a very limited Facebook page and we had the news channel streaming into our ops room every day. But we didn't really know what people felt, what they thought. We didn't really know the effects of what we were doing, not fully. And mm-hmm. I certainly didn't have good historical context of Iraq. I didn't understand the full history of Iraq. I just understood the history or the stories that I was told whilst I was there by other soldiers or by the military command. So it's, and these are things I think about now, but I didn't really know about them then. I don't want to sort of plead ignorance, but I suppose what you don't know, you don't know. And I think that's why I'm very keen now on people thinking about when they represent someone's story, have they, do they understand the history of that person and why they got to where they got to? So it's more, I suppose it's empathy, isn't it? Having more empathy with, with, with the person that you're with. And so morally, I started to get really challenged then. And around about 2009, I kind of gave up the military decided to change paths and do a master's degree in photojournalism because that seemed to be the thing that fitted what I wanted to do around uh, creating stories with photography. And I really enjoyed that sort of year of really exploring what it meant to be not in the military, to be a citizen, Mm -hmm. to be a student. And actually this catastrophic realisation that I'd never really learnt how to be a woman a full, like, rounded woman. I actually have been completely surrounded by men. I had about two female friends at this point um, that I worked alongside. I was the only woman in my unit for about five years. And I sort of of understood that there was things that I felt about women that that were actually forms of misogyny that I'd gotten from being around men all the time. And it was a real wake-up call. And I remember going to the first Women of the World Festival on the South Bank and going, what have I been missing on all these years? Like, this entire room of women speaking in the same kind of levels of pitch was, I could feel it in my chest, this kind of change in tone. And it was such a profound moment to go, wow, okay, I I am a human being, but I'm also a woman, and I also have a role to play in that. And I had never read any feminism. I'd never even read a book about feminism. I didn't understand anything about feminism. Um, And I just didn't understand that there was a reason why I'd got to the things I'd got to that weren't just about, um, you know, uh, history. There was was acts of history that I had never understood, like the suffragette movement, um, and hadn't understood colonisation, how that affected the experience of other women around the world. And so I went on this kind of like, crazy quest to like learn as much as I could about this um but at the same time I really missed the family network of the military I felt very alone as well I felt very different again going back to like how I felt in childhood I felt like I didn't quite belong in in society and that 
there wasn't anything helping me to feel like a sense of belonging because, you know, I was trying to work a couple of jobs to pay the rent in London to be able to afford to stay where I was staying. And whilst I had a little bit of money from the military, I don't really come from a space where I've got access to other forms of income uh, from parents or partners or things like that. So it, it really was difficult. And so I needed a part-time job. And um, the Army Reserves were recruiting for their first kind of photography team, basically. Um, and I thought, well, why not? I'll get access to equipment. Um, I'll get a bit of training. And it does say that you're not going to go outside the UK. So I was like, great. Um, just be photographing regimental dinners, parades, all this kind of stuff. And at this point, I wasn't really... I still hadn't learned a bit about the full implication of the military. I just didn't really feel right about what we'd done, and I hadn't really processed it. And also, a lot of there'd been a lot of trauma in that time, especially in Iraq, by losing people I was very close to. So I had such a, a personal connection to it. I wasn't able to be subjective or objective about the situation in Iraq. I, hadn't, I didn't want to look at it because it was too painful. Um, so when I went back to the Army Reserves, they um, said, well, you know, we'll put you through a couple of weeks of training and then we'll give you a shout when you need to come and do some photography work. And very soon into that training, they said, well, actually, we've had someone drop out of the combat camera team in Afghanistan, so uh, we're going to send you there. And I was a bit like, oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. Um, and I really wasn't sure about where to go. And I had this kind of new set of eyes, I suppose, this new idea or a raised awareness at this point. And I thought, well, I can kind of be someone on the inside who's got more of a foot on the outside now of the military. And wouldn't it be interesting to go there with those two perspectives? To be an army photographer, but to also understand how society feels more about our time in Afghanistan, what we're doing there, and maybe I can look more at, about the story of the people of Afghanistan more in my role as an army photographer. Again, very complex. Um, but when I went there, I I also experienced my first my first, yeah I say I, I got my first experience of full on sexism. Um, from the army, who individuals within the sort of photography unit there, the, the, the sort of full-time army photographers, were really, really anti the idea of me going. They saw me as a civilian, that I didn't do enough training, etc. And really, you know, uh, sent me some pretty nasty messages. Uh, one guy told me to my face that I wouldn't be able to carry the weight, that I wouldn't be able to cope. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and, and really undermined me, and uh, to the point where I had to go and do some extra time taking photographs with another army photographer to prove that I was able of taking a photo. Um, and I understood that their their caution because I hadn't done their kind of six months of photography training, but. Um, I also had just done a master's degree in photojournalism and I'd already been working as a press photographer at this point. So it was a real interesting experience. And um, when I got to Afghanistan, I, I felt I was in that thing again where I had to prove myself again. And it didn't feel good. Um, and uh, within a week, I, I managed to get a number of images in the mainstream press. And then that sort of like quietened them down. And they thought, okay, she's good at what she does, kind of thing. 
also then there was a bit of interest in me because I was the first female um, army photographer to be deployed on frontline duties um, because the army photography team do go with everybody, whether it's the infantry or whether it's uh, any anybody, anybody in the British military working in Afghanistan. So I had quite a unique role there. And so all of a sudden this kind of penny dropped that there was this female photographer going out with the infantry on patrol. Um, and there were other women doing that, like medics and police women. And, you know, it wasn't, it, it was unique to people at home, but actually for us there it was kind of normal. Um, so I became a, a sort of um, earmarked in that way and there was a lot of interest in that. And uh, again, I realised that I was forging the way for other women to do the role and that's what happened. The next photography team had another another woman come along as the videographer who was who wanted to do it because she'd seen me do it. And that's, that's what I mean about when you see someone who represented you doing something you didn't think you could do, it changes the way you look at that thing straight away. Um, so I realised that being visible doing, doing something it, it is quite important, but it depends what it is, isn't it? Mm. And, I, and I thought, well, okay, is what we're doing in Afghanistan right? You know, I had a bit of an existential crisis um, around what our role was there, what were we really doing to affect any kind of change? And it's such a complicated question because you can ask so many different people this question, no one really has the same answer. Um, and I thought, well, at least while I'm here, I can photograph as many of the people around me as possible, not just the military, but also any uh, people from Afghanistan. And I tried to do that where I could. Um, and I remember getting a story in Country Life of um, a local gardener in Lashkar who kept coming into the military camp and doing all the flowers for the for the camp. And so the I got uh, his pictures were in the Guardian and Country Life, and I wanted people at home to see that this was a not just the story of soldiers. There was all these people whose lives were being affected by this war. You know, when I came back from. Afghanistan, I realised that I had to use this it, it, this unusual access that I had um, to share some of this more complexity. And shortly after returning, I was asked to go back to Afghanistan as a, as a photojournalist and pick any subject that I felt I could cover that was misunderstood. And I thought, it's going to be about women. And it has to be about these women that do take frontline roles um, within embedded within infantry units or working alongside what is classed as more combat roles because women have been doing that for over a hundred years and yet we're still mystified, fascinated by this. So that's how the white picture happened, um, and it was called the white picture because the way that they, because the, the military measures everything, right? You know, it, it looks at it as a, as a number and, and it impacts. Um, they call the intelligence picture the grey picture, you know, the mm. information that might be collected from a patrol. But what these women were doing on these female engagement teams, they classed it as being so hard to measure that it was invisible, therefore it's white. It, was, it couldn't be seen, it couldn't be measured. So that, they called it the white picture. And I thought, well, that's what we'll call it because it's so intangible that they feel that it's not important enough to be measured whereas I wanted to amplify it to say it is important to be measured it did happen 
and it's important for us to acknowledge that women took up this role at this certain time in history. Um, and so that forged the way then for me looking at lots of different areas where I've, I've noticed or seen that women are pushed to the sidelines. Um, or What was yeah, the reaction on. to your exhibition, The White Picture, at the time? Because it documented the lives of women serving in the British Army and it was exhibited in 2012. So back then, yeah. how did people react to it? Um, <laughs> it's really strange because for a photographer to have an exhibition in a gallery like this very early on in their career, it's, it's two things, right? First of all, it's, it's amazing to, to, to be able to see your work in that way. But it's also incredibly overwhelming um, because I wasn't prepared for this and I wasn't prepared for the publicity that came along with it. And in the first few hours that the press release went out, I was in the gallery with helping with the installation and my phone went kind of crazy and I started to get phoned by different news outlets across the world um, about this particular story, which was mind-blowing to me. Um, and it, there was people in China calling me, people in Peru calling me, people in Spain for interviews to talk about this subject. So it wasn't just isolated to the British media, it was globally, people were fascinated by these women wearing uniform and being soldiers. And I was really, that shocked me the most, that actually we were still kind of almost fetishising this mm. thing about women being in combat roles. And I thought, why is this like this? And I googled the word soldier um, and it came up often as, a, as represented as a male. And then I Googled female soldier, and my God, the stuff that came up was so problematic. You know, it's hypersexualized images of women in combat. And, you know, it was all very, very over the top. And so there wasn't actually a balanced view of women in uniform that wasn't, A, given up by the Army PR as this really good thing to do, or something to do that was quite sexualized. So I thought, okay, I think my work quite, is quite important then because it isn't giving you an exaggerated view. It's giving you a, what happened at that time. It's very realistic. And so you, the reaction... You yeah, were, sorry. When you, no, not at all. When you decided that you wanted to join the Army Reserve, you said it was the first yeah. time that you were actually told that you couldn't do it because women aren't allowed. Thinking of people's reactions to then your exhibition in 2012 do you think our view towards the military particularly when it comes to women has changed yes it's good it has to and it has and i think the one if i was going to take away something that i'm uh, proud about with the work uh, and what it's done is that if People want images now to talk about the subject. They at least have some that are accurate, that are that represent these women as well as I can, because I did collaborate with these women a lot. You know, they are very aware of when these pictures get used. They consented to the images being used, and they're not some kind of fantasy version of this. And I think because now the ban has been lifted on women in frontline roles, and we've We've just had our first two women pass um, basic infantry training in Catterick in the last two months. Um, the perception's changing because there's more women doing it. And unfortunately, 
we still have to be trailblazers and pioneers in certain areas where it's been very male-dominated. Um, so the attitudes are changing, um, but it has to be measured with what you join the military for. I, and I, I always go back to this, and something that I learned as a younger woman, proving a point, setting the path for other women is is admirable and noble and is often a good thing to do. But it has to be in the context of why. And it's like saying uh, first female prime minister, but if that prime minister has caused absolute devastation to a country, mm. then it's not something that I want to applaud. And it, I feel the same about the military now. Um, and whilst these women have gone through their infantry training, the actual role of the infantry is something that... Um, it also needs to be considered. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm pro or anti-military. I just think that the military has a role to play in society now and that its role needs to change from war fighting to a kind of more, if we think about the impending climate disaster, I think the military is going to have a pivotal role in this um, and that women might be more involved in that. So it's a really complicated subject, right? Um, yeah. So... It's, there's areas of it where I really feel that women are empowered and then other parts where I'm not so much into the idea of women going into more combat roles because I also have experience firsthand what combat warfare and trauma does to a person. So it's a really complicated thing to applaud. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a long answer, but it's really, like you said, it's, it's something I'm still working out now. No, as I've said, I'm absolutely just fascinated by, I won't call it your career because it's so much more, it goes so much deeper than that. It really is past you. It's just really your journey. So when you made that decision to go from being a soldier to then a war photographer, when somebody says that to me, I really do genuinely think of just terrible places and hiding and trying to capture images is it really like that or is the reality completely different than what we may imagine yeah sure um well of course i think it has to be um what you have to think about with war photography it's a very sensationalized term anyway right um and what is a war um and also what does it mean by going to a war zone well first of all um when you go to an area where there's any form of conflict you are not in that conflict 24-7, right? Not, not if you're smart. You will be on a front line for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, right, if you're doing it safely. You're not there constantly. So what you do see is how life is affected by that, that conflict, everyday life, the normal life that we're used to if you're in a peaceful environment. So the thing with covering conflicts um, is not just about the... Uh, the dangerous element of it which unfortunately becomes quite addictive to a lot of people and I find it really almost sad that people are applauded for putting themselves at, at so much risk to take images in places of violence like front lines and yet actually the real stories, the ones that we can relate to are the stories of the people trying to live their lives through these conflicts, whether it's in refugee camps whether it's in their homes and surviving as they go through that. So it's really complicated because if you think about it, when I was in Palestine, yes, there were airstrikes, very regular airstrikes from the Israeli Defence Forces, 
but there was also a maternity wing in a hospital where women were giving birth. You know, mm. everyday life doesn't stop. It's just changed by the nature of a conflict. And for me, um, the word war photography is almost a sexy title that people use to get noticed or recognised. And it's almost a term that I shy away from. Um, I prefer conflict photographer or post-conflict photographer because I, by my own journey, I'm interested in, in showing some of the realities of conflict as on people, psychological conflict, physical conflict. And I think that the term war photographer simplifies this and makes it more sellable to people. And therefore, I have to say, the power dynamic of more men being war photographers is related to that as well. When something is seen as more exciting and sensational, it becomes more male-dominated by, by the nature of that. And I think that when you travel to a place where there has been conflict, the reality is so different because it will be 99% boredom, sitting around, talking to people, and then that 1% might be the images of someone firing a weapon or something really graphic and that might be the thing that gets published so it's not the full picture really it's a very small picture of a very big story and I think if you're interested in conflict photography you need to look at a number of photographers working in that region who are from the region not just westerners or international mm. media that come in and get their short story, whatever it is they need for their outlet, look at the people living through it and what they choose to document. Because within all that, you will find stories of human resilience, hope, kindness, friendship, love, that all those things exist in war. They're not just separate, they are present. And in some ways, we as a society, especially in the UK, have a lot to learn from the way that people adapt to complete changes in their society through war. And I think they're much more connected than we are right now because of it. So I, I don't find the kind of action end of conflict photography appealing at all um, because mm. I've been through too much of it. So okay. I fell into conflict photography not because I wanted to be a war photographer but because it's what I knew mm. and I wanted to explore it further. And I knew that I could do it safely because of my military training ultimately. Um, and I guess editors saw me as a safe pair of hands to go and cover that but I certainly have no desire to share war stories and this one time and this one time this happened this one I, I really cannot stand those kind of spaces because those stories that people tell about their escapades involves probably innocent people dying families being torn apart you know so it's almost kind of uh, disgusting mm. in a way yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's I do. a distasteful, disrespectful element to it. There's no dignity. So I don't, I'm, I'm very uh, cynical in that area, I think. <laughs> no, it's Just, really, uh, it's so interesting because it's a conversation talking about conflict and battle zones and what people are going through. And I would like to think I have gone to university I've read a lot about these different topics but we have these almost flippant conversations now and I can only really speak because I live in Britain currently in the UK and it's just so insightful to actually talk about somebody who's lived through it and how they feel that the story should be told and I do feel almost 
it's not our place to define anything when it comes down to conflict because we haven't gone through it and i know you mentioned the one percent so i want to ask how do you decide when as a photographer when the right moment is to capture something do you just take hundreds of photos hoping you've captured one or do is there a sort of strategy behind it oh um it's the relationship between your gut instinct when you feel that's the moment so your emotional part of you which connects to that moment based against your rational part of your brain your logical part which is thinking about is it safe to do this um is it um, relevant to what we're talking about? Um, is it um, respectful? Um, and, and it's about understanding human beings. And again, like when I talk about safety training, it's about empathy as well. And do I have consent to take this image? Is this the right moment to do this? Is it going to make the situation worse? But there is something about the instinctive side of me that knows that that would make a good image first of all but it's then the second thought is is it the right time to take this and the word take is important capturing you're taking something away from something so I do work from quite an ethical position where I can mm. where I'm always full of that I'm mindful of that it could be the best photograph you've taken but if no one consents to that if it's about someone suffering, if you don't even know their name and you're entering that into a photography competition, what kind of person does that make you? And is this how we should be sharing the stories of the world? And so I think my morals kind of are my guiding compass for most of this work. They really are. And it means that I will never be a wealthy person in the sense of people will pay me lots of money for my stuff because I won't choose the most sensational image. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are times when it's just so dangerous that you do just shoot everything and edit it later because there are that many, there's sometimes just not enough time to make a decision. But the edit is the key thing. What you choose to leave in and leave out is the thing that you have the control of, right? No, I just find it really, um, again, I keep coming back to this word insightful again because we haven't, our listeners, I mean, maybe a few have, probably haven't lived through this I do find you just sharing your story just incredibly insightful and it's great to be learning about this about how to approach approach not only those who have fought in conflict or who have been for whatever reason whether it's you know medical to be a nurse or to be a doctor over there or to be a photographer just the whole thing I find really interesting and coming back to human connection during my master's in journalism we were asked the question because of twitter is everyone a journalist? So I'd like to ask you, because of Instagram, is everyone a photographer? Oh, it's such a difficult one because, uh, yes, in that moment that you take a photograph, you're a photographer. You know, what is the definition of a photographer? Is there even a definition? I'm sure there is somewhere a definition of that. Um, but you're making an image. You're choosing a moment to share with the world. And I would say that the way that people use Instagram now is, is, is very... Um, professional in many ways in the sense that they do really good photography um, to share something whether it's a product a story a picture of themselves you know um, there's there's this kind of um, use of the 
photography is a language that I think is has gained momentum because of platforms like Instagram and Snapchat and, and even Facebook, really. But there is a line, I think, between um, saying you like photography and you use photography in the context of Instagram, but then sharing your work as a photographer. And I think that line is about... Well, the line of separation is about the fact that you're not... You're now sharing stories that may not be just about you or not personal. Something about being personal with your imagery and then taking it away from that and talking about other people's experiences, which means that you need to learn um, some of the basics of journalism and you do need to think about ethics and you do need to think about consent. And we can't appropriate people's story without some sort of thought. So for me, the difference between taking pictures on Instagram of my phone of my pet are very different to if I was doing a photo essay about poverty in schools. There's a, there's a professionalism that I need to have within that, you know, professional captions, names, consent, you know, the, the building of the story. I think that's when I feel more like a photographer. But when I'm shooting on my phone, it doesn't feel, I don't feel so much as a photographer then it's a really hard question to answer that is because it's like we're trying to put things into a box again and I don't think we can really put them into categories I think one thing that worries me about Instagram as a platform for the younger generation is that I I hoped in this kind of third or fourth wave of feminism that we're in that we would be aiming to feel more comfortable as who we are but I'm seeing the opposite And I'm seeing this kind of obsessive behaviour around image and kind of the Kim Kardashian generation. And I find it disturbing sometimes. Do you find it really tough, genuinely, having been in these terrible, devastating places where there is trauma happening? And that obviously, as we said at the beginning, has stayed with you. Do you then find it coming really back and living almost do you find it hard living then in the western world and seeing either kardashians or influencers you know youtubers talking about their designer handbags do you find that difficult yeah very difficult yeah it's so difficult and i'm not angry at that because i understand the world is a complicated place um i just find it sad i really find it sad i feel like it's a huge distraction from some of the issues that we face as humanity. I think it's keeping us away from the things that we really need to be focusing on. And I know that we need sometimes forms of escapism because life is tough and I know that it can be hard. But I just find that the fact that we latch onto a celebrity culture is taking it too far the other way. And I find that sad. And I do like the diversity of being a person and how we can associated to so many different things that might make us feel more complete or make us more feel more of a woman or whatever that means but I, I honestly also think that we're globally quite disconnected and I think these are, and these are tools for that disconnection and um, and that I, I know this from like the way that we talk about conflict is that most people are pretty pretty switched off to it now totally desensitized to it. Um, because they've seen so much war 
and you know the war in Syria is still going on but people don't they have no capacity to watch this anymore they, they want to watch everything else that's happening on social media so we're kind of mass we're, it's like a mass desensitization of people's attention spans um, so and, and I question then as, a, as an artist how can we still keep people engaged in some of these social issues how do I stop getting bitter and cynical different generation is more interested in objects or things that are actually quite damaging to us right we're, mm-hmm. we're, it's like a we're inspiring to own something that is not contributing anything really to the world it's just taken away from it which is just about extracting as much from people as possible and we're intelligent generally people who market things know how to use the right words to get people to buy that thing to make them feel a certain way but they're just trying to fill a hole in the soul and we've got to fill that ourselves really you know by how we relate to each other how do we talk to each other can we make eye contact now you know and i think that's why photography still has its place um and that we can still at least put photographs out into public spaces to maybe re-engage people back with some of the things that do kind of matter on a global scale uh, and also locally not just globally on a community level you know we um we've got to stop aspiring to be something other than ourselves really um because it's really important because whatever trauma you've been through even me going through different conflicts at the end of the day i have to return back to myself mm. and i know what that means and if myself is built as loads of different masks of myself through buying lots of things or creating a version of myself I'm always going to feel disconnected so and that's something I've learned over the last kind of 20 years really it is really interesting I was saying it in a recent interview that I'm an ambassador for the NSPCC which means I carry out workshops there with children who have had to go through some really traumatic things here in the UK whether that be poverty or foster care children who were who have been really severely bullied or who have self-harmed and then I've also gone into so many other schools where they have an opportunity to ask me a question and they just ask me how many followers I have on Instagram and it has been really fascinating over the years to see young the younger generations their priorities almost completely shift and their integrity maybe just not be at the forefront now it's very much oh i want to be famous like kim kardashian i want to be as rich as whoever and that's really where their focus lies rather than following through and having a purpose it's tied up with wealth and fame so having seen what you have and achieved what you have alison how would you define success for you Not having lots of followers on Instagram. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's very uh, honest. I really I like it. <laughs> yeah, I don't. And I know that people will be like, ooh, when I say that, because I'm like, yeah, but you can reach more people. Okay. Yeah, maybe I could. Um, but I also know that there's something about slowing things down and believing in the process. Because for me, this is a lifetime of work, not a quick overnight thing Mm. so success to me is not wrapped up in financial wealth it's not wrapped up in which car i have how big my house is those things really are not relevant to me but they're not important to me my my success really is a can i feed myself am i free 
Yes, reasonably. Am I free to make choices? Yes. Am I free to live as the woman I want to be? Yes. Um, you know, and am I still able to create something? Am I physically healthy? Yes. Okay, that's success for me. And that means that I have capacity to share this with other people, that I can help people when I need to, um, that I'm not burnt out all the time because I'm trying to maintain all these things like a huge mortgage and a big house and a car and all those things. They're just, they're just they're distractions, really from what is really important and you know um, that's the, those kind of icons of success are the things that are still keeping us trapped mm. and um, for me success is about it is about following something through and believing in something but ultimately believing in yourself because there will be so many times in your life that you will question who you are whether you're worth anything whether you're accepted whether you're enough um, and the day I woke up and realised that I was enough as I am, it felt like I'd reached a point in my life where I was very successful. And it wasn't because of anything that was around me, it was more that what I'd managed to survive, and also perhaps what people I've worked with have also survived. And also a connection, connecting people to work. If someone emails me and says, I really connected to that photograph of that person it made me think about someone else in my life and how we've survived this thing together um those things mean the world to me that's success for me mm. that's success. or platforming another artist's work who feels invisible or marginalized or doesn't think anyone will like their art and yet they've got really powerful stories to share that's success it comes in so many different shapes but it definitely doesn't come from how many followers I have, or mm. people see me, you know? <laughs> no, completely. Is there anything you would change about your journey? Um, I think I think I'll always wonder what would happen if I hadn't joined the military. Um, whilst it's important to what I do now and having that perspective, I will always think about that um, and whether I've gone off and join Greenpeace, which was my other option at that point, <laughs> what that would have meant to my life. Um, and also, I think I would have wanted to know more about me as a woman when I was younger, and perhaps I might have had perhaps healthier relationships at that point with men, because I've never, never really um, wanted to settle mm. in some ways, and, uh, and I think if I I'd known that that would have been okay. I wouldn't have gone into so many different bad relationships as well and understood um, that we're as, as powerful in many ways and we don't have to accept the way that men treat us. And at times, not all men, but mm. a lot of men. No, I completely... <laughs> I do agree. This is what I talk about regularly. No, I do completely agree. Talking about your photography, Alison, just for our listeners maybe they're amateur photographers they're just starting out what would be some of your best tips if you like and what is the actual process of putting on an exhibition if someone's listening thinking oh my gosh I've got these incredible human stories to share but I don't know where to begin what advice would you give them mm. um, well um, find the voice that within your photography first um Question yourself, who are you, what's your identity, what positions you to be the person telling the story, what's your relationship to the story, 
And be self-aware. Um, don't think that you have some entitlement because you have a camera to tell someone else's story. That's where I think photojournalism in a Western context has gone wrong a lot of the times. Mm. Um, so, you know, you're white and you're doing a story about black people. Are you the right people to be telling person to tell that story? Is there another photographer who represents that identity who's also able to see that story? Those things are ethical questions that I think you should ask very early on in your career um, or your time as a photographer. Um, also, think about, well, here's a great story about people and how does it then connect to other things? Does it just need to be on its own or can you work with an organisation that are also working on that subject, uh, whether it's a charity or grassroots movement? And, you know, is there some relationship you can have with another with another set of people who are interested in that particular social issue? Um, and also, when it comes to exhibiting your work, don't be uh, intimidated by the way that the institutions of galleries and museums work. Um, they do hold a lot of power, but they're not the only way you can show your photography. Don't think that that's the only form of success is to have it in a gallery from someone who's done all of these things now. Um, sometimes you can put up work in the in local library and it will have an impact. Sometimes you can put it up in a town hall and it will have a local impact. Look for a space where public go, where people will see the work. It doesn't always have to be in a white gallery um, inside, inside a space. It isn't always about that because you have to remember who are you making the work for who do you want to see the work and then work back from there about the space it needs to be in the way that you put up the work um, and lastly it's about funding it's difficult if you're not from privilege when you're trying to exhibit work you need to understand that a lot of artists and photographers are not honest about their background and they may have had a lot of help to get them into that space it's not because their work's better it might be just they've just had a different form of privilege to get into it don't be intimidated by that, whether you put your work in a zine and share it for free or you can only afford to print two pictures, just put it up because the big thing is about confidence on sharing your work um, and then apply for things like Arts Council funding, developing your creative practice is um, money that can explore very early on in your creative practice and may help you then to move on to a onto applying for grants for the arts and then that will help to cover your day fee, studio hire um, and then perhaps an exhibition if that's what you, you're intending on doing. But actually look at an exhibition as just being one way. Don't look at it as the only way. I think that's really key um, because we get a bit tied up in that being sort of like the success of having an exhibition. It's not the only way of doing it um, and in some ways it isn't the best way either. So explore other options as well, whether it's self-publishing, whether it's making it on a website, whether it's printing it as wheat-based posters and doing it as street art. Look at all those different ideas. Don't just get fixed on, fixed on an exhibition. Now, I don't want you to share anything you don't feel comfortable with, Alison, or if there's anything you don't want to answer, that's fine. Um, I do want to ask, you've obviously travelled a lot. You've fought, you're obviously have been um, a conflict photographer. In those places, what is maybe, because photography always comes back to human stories, what is maybe the most compelling story that has stuck with you the most? Yeah, that's a good question. 
<laughs> you can take a couple um, of minutes. Yeah, there's so many. There's so many. Um, there's kind of two, really. There's, um, but I think I'll just focus on this one. I, um, I just been so many misunderstandings about women in Afghanistan and the way that women are treated, and it was really misused to uh, as part of this reason to go to Afghanistan, which really failed. Um, so I had no concept of what it was like to be a woman in Afghanistan, or I never will, I'm not Afghan, but I did um, understand what it's like to be a woman in uniform, and the first time I went to the police station in Nashgadar, um, I was made aware that there was a number of women who were in the Afghan National Police, and I thought, well, that's quite interesting, it's quite a conservative culture, a lot of women weren't in work, mm-hmm. um, certainly not in uniform. And so I heard about this police commander called Islam Bibi. And uh, she was uh, in the police station at that time. So I I asked if I could go and photograph her and meet her because I was really interested in her story. And uh, when I met her, she was uh, incredibly um, similar to me in her outlook about what she was doing, what she did. And we, we got on really well. And obviously talking through an interpreter means there's a little bit of a barrier. But she did also show me what her training was and how she was trying to encourage other women to join the police. And they were using the burqa as a disguise for the uniform. So they were walking into the police station wearing the blue burqa to cover their uniforms, right? So they were sneaking mm-hmm. in in some ways. And then underneath they had full police uniform, badges, they were carrying a weapon. Um, and she took me to this gym uh, that they had there and she was being mentored by um, a British police officer, a female British police officer. So she showed me the training she did with the women and she was really quite funny. And uh, I, re- I was really kind of, kind of taken with Islam. Um, and she, um, I met her several times after that. And I remember asking her like afterwards, um, do you know, do you worry about your safety? Because, you know, are, are you worried that the Taliban will find out what you're doing? She's like, oh, they've already tried to kill me many times. Um, you know, I've, I've I've dealt with this all the time. Alison, this is just part of my work. This is part of the risk I take. Oh, my God. And, yeah, I went home and uh, back to, you know, I, I took her portraits and um, made a little piece about her work and... About two years later, um, someone sent me a message and said, have you seen the news today? And, uh, you know, um, Islam Bibi has been assassinated by the Taliban. Oh, my and God. They, um, they shot her um, while she was travelling with her brother-in-law on the way back from the police station. Um, and I remember feeling this real sense of um, loss because um, I did... You know what I said about someone reflecting a story mm. back to you, something that you connect to, and um, and I thought, wow, we, there was a, there was that connection, but also she died for uh, showing the way for other women, and I think when women put themselves at such risk to do something that they care about, but to also show an example for other women, you know, then those women should be celebrated and yet um, 
you know, everyone wanted to know about Afghanistan when the war was happening. But once I, that had faded, no one cared. And it also reminded me of that as well, the selective nature of the news. Um, so I'll always have Islam Bibi's story very close to me, and uh, she certainly appears from time to time when I'm sharing things about very strong and inspirational women. Um, yeah, so I'd say that was kind of something that really stood out for me. And there's, there's many more women who no, shine light into how to, be a, how to be a woman, right? So, yeah, she's just one of them. No, I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry to hear about your loss. That really is um, devastating. But thank you again for sharing and opening up about that particular story because I can only imagine how difficult that is. Now, coming on to most recently, you have founded a safety training movement and also a festival celebrating non-binary people. I'm really curious to know, you know, kind of changing topics... What do you feel maybe the everyday person could do more to celebrate non-binary people? Well, I mean, I think it's not so much just, it's not about celebrating, it's just accepting. Mm -hmm. I I started um, Powering the Matriarchy together as a festival in Birmingham because I recognise that our city particularly, when it comes to celebrating our amazingly diverse queer community here, was really failing. Mm. And um, when I looked at the term women's, but with an X, I, I got loads of advice from other women that I really trust who said, look, you know, feminism is very white and we don't really understand what intersectionalism really fully means and how to do it. And, you know, that's also lifetime work, right? And it's also something to consider in everything we do. And so uh, I realised that a lot of the things I was reading about feminism did not relate to black or brown women, Mm. and certainly not queer women. And certainly if you were MB or non-binary and you presented as uh, more feminine-looking, that you were subjected to the same levels of abuse from the patriarchy as a heterosexual woman. Oh, my God. So it makes so much sense for me to um, include non-binary people into the work that I do with women, and I mean all women, cis, trans or femme, um, when we're looking at this, because I I think when you know something, you can't just then unknow it. So it made total sense for us to create a space to celebrate this utopian Mm-hmm. in a utopian festival of what would it be like if we didn't have any of these barriers against misunderstanding us or misgendering us. So I think if you want to really care, or you, and you should care, about how people feel really marginalised by people's ignorance and also their defensiveness to not change, to not to... So it comes from a place of, well, I didn't know that, I know it now, but I don't want to admit that I know it because I don't want to seem stupid is to read, use Google, ask questions, right? If someone says my pronouns are there and there, use the pronouns. And if you get the pronouns wrong, apologise and correct yourself. Like, it isn't about you, it's about their experience Mm -hmm. too and you understanding. It's part of human evolution, right? It's how we evolve. So this is the next part of our evolution. Well, we've been living on this binary for like decades as if it's somehow the only way of being and we now know that it isn't. So, you know, a lot of conversations uh, with people who don't 
associate with um, uh, heteronormative pronouns or behaviors actually have a lot of wisdom about the future of how we can exist as humans. So, you know, they, they shouldn't be marginalized, but they should be celebrated because actually I find it so liberating when I'm in a queer space. Like, I really do. I went to a ball the other week there here in Birmingham called House of Vogue, and it was the most, like, brilliant space I've been in for a long time. Creative, open, free, expressive. It was really quite special. And because they've had to fight to be who they are, mm. they don't have that self-consciousness, and, and they have all the mental health uh, challenges to get through because of being oppressed but when they're in a space where they feel safe it's kind of glorious so you know I I support that and want to celebrate that through my work and hence why the safety training I started which is called RAW is about women and non-binary people because I feel that safety concerns we experience are the same and therefore you know that's why we wanted to set up this movement to help build more training for help with our emotional and physical resilience when you were setting up the festival, obviously you probably would have had to have done a lot of research. Are there any resources you would recommend our listeners and readers turn to if they want to learn more about that field and, like you said, really accepting everybody? Because uh, I'm not an expert. Uh, the only expert is someone who lives with that identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally, um, I would say um, I, I actually read the Stonewall web- website first to look mm. at the history um, of LGBT um, and then understanding the changing language of LGBTQ plus and um, I, I just ask people I use honestly I use Google um, you know um, I my brother is gay I asked his friends mm-hmm. I talked to them I just had coffee and tea with people, listened, and I think we have to take ourselves out of our own understanding of the world and listen to other people's experiences, because that's how it shapes our knowledge and understanding. Um, and I, I just read. I read a lot. I read a lot of books. Um, I went to a bookshop in Washington in September, um, an independent bookshop, and I asked the person there who was non-binary who has written books who's from a non-binary identity and they gave me a list mm. so I read them wow. um, it's asking it's asking I think well I don't know about this so how am I going to find out because what we often do is we expect someone else to do all that labor for us and educate us Absolutely. but without helping you know and that's exhausting isn't it so I, I do think we can self-find a lot of our a lot of material and read lots of blogs from trans activists um, or activists working in the queer community and you know that was signpost you to understanding a bit better. Um, within Birmingham where I am now there's an amazing group called Unmuted mm-hmm. um, and they support people of colour um, and there's uh, um, they've set up the House of Bab which is the first kind of house ballroom scene in Birmingham Um, and I think uh, they've got a real um, so much to share within this city particularly around um, how to kind of understand better but also how to be um, uh, to 
to notice when other people are being homophobic, mm. intolerant, abusive, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't have a really easy answer for that. I don't have, like, one, one website you can go to. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. But there are, it's one of those topics, isn't it? You would never be able to just... It's a bit like if somebody said, oh, what's your favourite, I don't know, women's rights or feminism book or, you know, material that focuses on feminism. You could never just come up with a website that kind of has all of the answers. You really need to recommend such a... Because everybody has a different experience and story to share. So I don't ever think so that's totally fine. I can give you, like, if I, I'm looking at my bookshelf now, right, I'll give you four books that okay. were, like, quite seminal in me thinking about things. The first one was Angela Davis, Women, Race and Class. That's a kind of a, a definite go-to book for anyone thinking about feminism and thinking about race and class mm -hmm. in that, so if you're thinking about intersectionism. Um, the next one I've got is Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Mercado which is a kind of speculative fiction by a woman of colour, which is extraordinary. And uh, I'm not going to spoil it, so please read it. It's like a number of short stories. Um, the other one is Bell Hooks, um, All About Love, which I think is one of the best books I've ever read about our experience of love as women. She's a queer woman of colour, so she also shares from that perspective too. And I would say... Uh, the Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee-Taylor about how we accept our physical selves more um, and how we embrace ourselves and all our imp all perceived imperfections. Um, and the last one that's really personal to me about being single and over 40, because mm -hmm. that's such a stigmatised type of woman, is uh, by Glynis McNichol called No One Tells You This. And it's about embracing that uh part of you and not to feel ashamed about not having children not having a partner that there are other ways of being a woman in this world and it doesn't have to be in the kind of stereotypical way so they're my like four or five books I've kind of been reading over the last kind of three years <laughs> those are fantastic recommendations I love them and then to finish off I just want to ask you Alison what does your day-to-day -day really look like now what's your vision for the future and is there a mantra you live by or a favorite quote so I'm really putting loads of energy into Raw now. Um, we've just been to New York um, doing this with female non-binary photojournalists and we did a session with, I worked with a clinical psychologist, uh, someone who deals with photography and ethics and self-defense instructor, all female team um, delivering safety training and we kind of tried it out. We got funded from a charity to do it. Um, needs to be more present, so we're going to start working in the black country with lots of different women doing some safety training with them. Um, within that, I'll still be doing more photography, or I'll be doing some documentary photography alongside the safety training, which would be an interesting blend. And I, on a, on a daily basis, uh, I, the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is take my dog for a walk in the, in the woods, and that is my grounding thing to do. Um, being in nature is really important to me and um, certainly this time of year it's about resting a lot mm -hmm. um, and I think 20 years of covering this kind of work has really taken its toll on me and so I forgive myself for not doing as much as I thought I was going to do that's been a really big thing about accepting that it's okay 
to not be okay and it's also okay to rest. So in many ways throughout December, I get the year compass, which is this thing I download and I look back at the last year and I look ahead to the next year and some of the things that might happen, they might not happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly I feel there's another, there's another photography project in me. There's another set of questions I want to ask and there's something that I just want to do and I don't know whether it's going to be with film photography um, but it will be images of um, female veterans and it will be looking more at the psychological side of it. So that's exciting. It's like a new a new way to go um, with my photography. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. It just shows it doesn't matter what age you get to, you can you can still transform, um, you know, and it's a lifelong journey, not, not between the ages of whatever the standard working age is the government sets. It goes way beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I completely. So yeah, I do agree with that. This is why I always am trying. I'm trying to be a bit careful when I say to people, "Oh, can you, you know, talk about your career?" Because a lot of the time, you know, if not all of the time, people are so much more than their careers. And a career is never a career. It's a complete journey, and where you started isn't where you end up. So no, I completely agree with that. And I have to say. Alison, just thank you so, so much again for sharing your journey with us, for sharing your path with everybody in conflict. I don't necessarily like to describe them as complete heroes because I never know how everyone will react to that. But you really are. You're a force to be reckoned with. So thank you so much again. And I've got absolutely no doubt we will stay in touch. But thank you.